Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved just for big business. To get a 14-day free trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Theragun. And now you can try Theragun for 30 days, starting as low as $199. Just go to therabody.com slash Peter right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. The big story today is inflation. And the story would be even bigger if the statistics that the government released were honest but I will get to that a little bit later in the podcast. But for now, let's just focus on the numbers that were released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics yesterday on Friday, the official CPI numbers for the month of November. The consensus forecast was for a 0.7% rise, which is a big number, especially on the back of the 0.9% increase for the previous month, and we ended up with a 0.8% rise. So a big number, even bigger than what had been expected. But what's particularly problematic is that these are big back-to-back increases in October and November. Again, proving that what we've seen thus far in 2021 is hardly transitory. Of course, I was saying this at the beginning of the year, but the October-November numbers. This is the biggest back-to-back increase in the CPI of the year. And the year is almost over. We got one year left, but clearly the gains that we're seeing were not transitory if we're at the end of the year and we're seeing even bigger back-to-back increases in monthly consumer prices than at any point during the year. In fact, let's go over again the 
monthly increases as reported by the government started in January and that was the low water mark a 0.3% increase January was the low for the year there wasn't a single month of the year where prices rose less than they rose in January now back then at the beginning of the year they were telling us that the numbers we were seeing then that was the high mark it was supposed to go down by the end of the year because we were supposed to see this spike which was related to the reopening and year-over-year comparisons between early 2020 and early 2021 because it was in the early part of 2020 that we locked down the economy everything was collapsing due to COVID. And so that was supposed to skew the data in early 2021. But by the middle to the end of 2021, everything would be normalized and we would be back down to 2%. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. I pointed that out real time. If you go back and listen to the podcast that I recorded in January, February of this year. But anyway, getting back to the numbers, the February increase was 04 March was 0.6, April was 0.8, May was 0.6, then June spiked up to 0.9. July, we saw a decline to 0.5, and then by August, we were back down to 0.3, which matched the low watermark set in January. And of course, back then, everybody was saying, oh, you see, this is it. This move back down in August proves that it was transitory. The transition just lasted longer than we thought. It was a little bigger, but finally, you know, we've seen the light at the end of the tunnel and now everything's going to normalize. And of course, when I did my podcast back then, I said August was an aberration that we're more likely to see a return to the big numbers. September was 0.4 and then October 0.9, November 0.8. Again, the biggest back-to-back increases of the year. Now, what everybody is talking about in the news is the year-over-year increase, which went from 6.2% last month to 6.8% this month. That is the biggest year-over-year increase in consumer prices since 1982. But of course, if they just focused on the annualized rate thus far in 2021 because we've got 11 months so if you just extrapolate that and annualize it that comes out to 7.3 percent that's the inflation rate at least the official rate that we've got for 2021 we'll see that number next month because next month the year-over-year number will be the total year of 2021 and so i believe that what we have right now at 6.8 will rise, I say, to a minimum of maybe 7.2. It could end up being more than 7.3, depending on what the December number is relative to the average of the prior 11 months. But if you go back to 1982, the inflation rate in 1982 for the year was 6.1%. So even at the 6.8, we're well above that. 7.3 even further above but if you go back one more year 1981 that year we had 10.3 percent inflation going back to the november numbers though x food and energy the so-called core that was up 0.5 percent on the month and the year over year rise in the core 
4.9%. It was 4.6% the prior month. So going in the wrong direction, almost 5%. Again, remember, the Fed is still talking about inflation rates slightly above 2%. And we are miles above 2%. And there's no way we're going anywhere near 2% again. But what really annoys me about the comparison between the inflation rate from 1982 and the one that we have today is that it's an apples to oranges comparison. It is irrelevant. The media, of course, and the government always want to point to the higher inflation numbers of the 1970s to remind us that it's really not that bad because after all, it's nothing like the 1970s, except it's exactly like the 1970s, only worse. In fact, if you go back to the inflation numbers for the 1970s, and these are the government numbers, the CPI in the first year of the 1970s was up 5.8%. That's 1970. Well, we're already worse than that. 1971, the CPI was up 4.3%. We're worse than that too. 1972, CPI was up 3.3%. Worse than that. 1973, the CPI was up 6.2%. We're worse than that. So we're already worse than the first four years of the 1970s. So how is this not like the 1970s when we're starting off this decade worse than we were starting off the 1970s? Now, we finally got up to 11.1% inflation in 1974. But you know what? That's actually where we are. In fact, we're higher than that right now. And that is because the CPI that we use today, and I've said this many times on the podcast, is not the same CPI that we were using in the 1970s. And that makes comparisons completely irrelevant. Now, it serves the government's agenda to make these false comparisons so they can claim that the inflation we have now isn't as bad as what it was in the 1970s, even though it's already worse. If you measured inflation now, the way it was measured in the 1970s, I think 2021 would be worse than any single year of the 1970s. The worst year of the 1970s inflation actually happened in 1980. That was the peak. We got a 13.5% increase in consumer prices in 1980. In fact, 1979 to 1981 was the worst of it. 1979, 11.3%. 1980, 13.5%. 1981, 10.3%. That was the end. And that's what prompted Paul Volcker to finally go medieval interest rates went up to 20%, and that's what did the trick. The reality is we are already at an inflation rate as bad as it was at the high point of the 1980s, and we're just getting started. And the Fed is doing nothing but pouring gasoline on the fire. Now, how is it that we have an inflation rate that's worse than 13.5%? I think if we measure the CPI today, the way we measured it back then, 2021 would clock in at about 15%, which is higher than the 13.5% in 1980. Now, of course, the other way to do it is we could take today's CPI 
and recalculate inflation during the 1970s using the CPI of today. And if we did that, then all the numbers of the 1970s would be much lower. And today we would have higher inflation than at any point during the 1970s. But obviously an easier way to do it is just take the old CPI and use it to calculate inflation today so you can really see the difference. One of the easiest ways to see the difference is through house prices and rents. Because back in 1982, when we had that 6.1% inflation and all the higher rates in the earlier years and in the 1970s, house prices were actually in the CPI. They're not in it now. In fact, not only aren't house prices in the CPI, we don't even have rents in the CPI. We have this ridiculous concept called owner's equivalent rent. And I've talked about that on the podcast before, but I'll do it again. What owner's equivalent rent is, is a survey. The government apparently calls people up who owns homes and asks them, hey, if you had to rent out your house, what do you think you could get for it? And they guess and they take the numbers. I mean, why do that? Why not use actual rents that people are paying? Why ask people who aren't paying rent to kind of guess what rent they would pay if they were renting when they're not, when you actually have real rents that people are paying that you can use? Obviously, the government is just trying to fudge these numbers. Home prices are up 20% so far in 2021. Rents, I think, are up something like 17%. Owner's equivalent rent year over year, which is almost the entire 2021, up 3.5%. That is ridiculous. That is 25% approximately of the CPI is owner's equivalent rent, a price that not a single American actually pays, yet that's a quarter of the CPI. It is completely irrelevant. Why are you counting a price that no American pays as part of the CPI and excluding prices that every American's pay? Americans either pay rent or they have to buy a house. So one or the other, you have two choices. You can buy a house or you can rent it. So if you want to measure the cost of living and you want to look at shelter, well, you got to use one of those. You should use what it costs to rent and what it costs to buy because owner's equivalent rent is nothing because nobody actually pays that. But if you figure that this is a huge chunk of the CPI, it's obviously bringing it down because if the overall CPI year over year was 6.8 and 20% of that calculation was 3.5% from owner's equivalent rent, that means prices were actually up a lot more than 6.8, but we're masking that increase by using this owner's equivalent rent number. What would happen to today's CPI if you just substituted home prices for owner's equivalent rent, because that's what we were using in 1982 and throughout the 1970s was home prices. Well, if you put that 20% figure in and took the 3.5% figure out, that 6.8% year-over-year rise becomes an 11% gain. Just that one change. That's an apples-to-apples comparison, at least when it comes to home prices. So if we have an 11% increase in the CPI, not only is that worse than 1982, it's worse than 1981, which was 103 In fact, 
there were only three other years that we were above 11%. 1980, as I said, 13.5. 1979, 11.3. And 1974, 11.1. So if you simply make that one change, you bring us up to 11% and we're close to the worst inflation of that period, except that's not the only difference. There are other major changes that were made to the CPI since 1982, most specifically substitution and hedonics. Again, I've spoken about these things before, but I don't think I can speak about them often enough, especially when inflation is such a big story and it's being sugar-coated. I mean, as bad as it is, it's actually so much worse if the numbers are honest. Shopify is more than just a store. It helps you connect with your customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. So supercharge your knowledge and your sales and enhance your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com gold. All lowercase. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small business owners the resources once reserved for only the biggest businesses. And it's customized for you with a great looking online store that brings your ideas to life and gives you the tools to manage and drive your sales. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. Believe me, when I first started out in business, I was a one-man shop and I didn't have these type of tools available to me. But given the increased complexities of running your own business now, especially with all the new rules and regulations that in many cases apply, the tools that Shopify provides come in handier now than ever before. Success doesn't come easy, but with Shopify on your side, it will come easier to you. Shopify powers over 1.7 million entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale. And every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience required. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Gain the knowledge and confidence with the resources that you need to succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. These are the possibilities, and they're powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com gold right now. So what is substitution? Substitution is a concept that says if the price of something goes up, consumers will naturally buy less of it and they'll substitute something else. The classic example is steak and chicken. If the cost of steak goes up a lot, consumers won't actually buy the steak. They'll stop buying steak and they'll buy chicken instead. And so it was argued that, hey, if consumers aren't buying the more expensive stuff, then why should it be in the CPI? After all, people aren't buying it. Their cost of living isn't really going up because they're not buying the expensive steak. They're buying less expensive chicken. So we should take that steak out of the CPI and we should put in chicken because that's what people are actually buying. And so they adjust the CPI to reflect those changes. And while that may makes sense on the surface. Oh yeah, people aren't really paying those higher prices. They're not paying those higher prices because they can't afford it. 
People wanted to have steak. They preferred steak. They just got priced out of the market because of inflation. And so in order to survive, they had to substitute lower quality food items because that's what they could afford. But this is no longer measuring the cost of living. If the CPI, Consumer Price Index, is supposed to measure the cost of living, it makes no sense to include substitution because that's the cost of surviving. As I've said many times, by that logic, if chicken becomes so expensive that people can't even afford that and they start eating dog food instead of chicken, well, let's put dog food in the CPI. Oh, look, there's no inflation. Food prices aren't going up. Look, it's not costing people any more money to eat. Yeah, sure, they're eating dog food, but they're still eating, right? That is the absurdity of this argument. The CPI is supposed to represent the cost of maintaining a particular standard of living. And if that standard of living includes eating steak, then you gotta leave the steak in the CPI. And if Americans can't afford to buy steak, well, that's a problem, right? And the CPI should reflect that. So all of those items affect the CPI because obviously if they are taking stuff out that went up and substituting stuff that went up less or maybe even went down, right? It is going to affect the CPI. And regardless of whether or not you think that it makes sense to do this, right? If you want to take the government's absurd position that it is a more honest CPI to reflect what consumers are actually buying, not what they can no longer afford to buy because prices went up, they didn't do that in the 1970s or the early 1980s. So when you're comparing the CPI today to the CPI back then, you either have to adjust the CPI in the 70s and do the same type of substitution or don't do it now if you're trying to make a comparison. That's the same thing with hedonics. That's the other big thing that didn't exist back then that exists now. See, the government claimed that quality improvements are not really affected or represented in the CPI, and they should. After all, if prices go up, but you're getting more, you're getting an improved product, maybe the price didn't really go up at all. Yes, you're paying more, but you're getting more. And so the government wanted to account for that. And so let's say the price goes up 10%, but according to the government, the product is 20% better than the one that you used to buy, well, the price didn't really go up 10%. It went down 10% because you're getting 20% more and you're only paying 10% more. And this has had a big impact on the CPI. Now, again, even if you think this makes sense, we didn't do it back then. And so that affects the comparisons between the numbers that we're seeing now and the numbers we're seeing back then. So if we're saying that substitution and hedonics is a more honest way to represent inflation, then we should go back and redo all the numbers from the 1970s and include substitution, include hedonics for the purpose of comparison. But again, hedonics makes no sense because in many cases, just because a product gets better doesn't necessarily mean that it delivers a better experience to the customer. And in many cases, the customer has to pay for these improvements, whether they want them or not, whether they need them or not. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Some of the items that are most affecting hedonics are consumer electronics, right? They always get better. Computers get faster. They have more memory. But in many cases, it doesn't even matter. I mean, if a computer has more memory, if you don't even use half the memory that it has or a quarter of the memory, what difference does all that memory make to you if you don't even use it? Or if the computer gets faster for a lot of the applications, it doesn't even matter that you have a faster computer because the slower computer worked just as well for what you used it for. And in many cases, even if you want to get a lower quality, they don't even make it anymore. I mean, those have been discontinued. You've got to pay for the faster speed or the more storage, whether you want it or not. And it's not like we didn't have quality improvements in the 1970s or 1980s. I mean, the free market is always making stuff better. We're always figuring out better ways to make things, more efficient ways to make things. But normally, the prices are going to come down as well. That's what capitalism does. It's inflation that is forcing these prices to move up. But a lot of these improvements are very subjective as to whether or not the improvement has been made. And what I think is often ignored is when the quality of goods or services go down and there is no adjustment to the CPI. Classic example right now would be airlines. When they look at airfares, They don't increase the price because when you buy a plane ticket, you now have to pay extra to pick your seat. You now have to pay extra to check your luggage. You now have to pay extra if you want to buy any food. You have to pay extra if you want a pillow or a blanket. I mean, all of that stuff used to be included in the price of airline tickets. See, according to the government, airline tickets aren't going up that much because they don't make any adjustments for the huge degradation in the quality of service. So it's complete hypocrisy to say, oh, computers are faster and have more memory, therefore we're gonna take their prices down, but not jack up the price of an airline ticket when you get so much less for your money now than you used to get because now you have to pay for all this stuff that you used to get for free. And you also see that companies will substitute lower quality ingredients, they'll use cheaper materials, they'll find all kinds of ways to reduce quality rather than increase price, but I don't think any of this stuff actually makes it into the CPI. I think hedonics is basically a one-way street. The government finds the products that got better and artificially lowers their price and pretends the price went down, and then they ignore all of the examples where products got worse, services got worse, and they strictly look at price and they don't make any adjustments for the degradation in quality. I mean, another way that companies are dealing with higher costs is they automate, right? They don't hire humans, they use machines. So now you wanna get through to a company, you can be on hold for an hour or whatever, two hours, waiting on hold in some kind of voicemail. Where is that factor into the CPI? Whereas I used to be able to get right through and speak to a human being, and now you know I'm stuck on hold forever. Or you're going to a supermarket, and instead of having 10 registers open, there's only two or three, and now there's long lines at the checkout because the supermarket 
is responding to rising wages by hiring fewer workers. And so now when you go to the supermarket, it takes you a lot longer to check out. Well, why isn't that going to be a factor in a CPI? How much time you have to spend on the checkout line because the market has economized due to rising wages. The same thing with how much time you spend assembling stuff. I've talked about that on the podcast. It's very frustrating. You know, you buy all this stuff and it comes from China, but it's all boxed up. I mean, once upon a time, if you bought something, it was already assembled when you bought it. But because everything has to be imported and put on a ship, everything is in parts and you get the package and you get some instructions. Sometimes you can barely read the instructions and you've got all these screws. And for some reason, you know, whenever I put something together, there's something left over and I get worried that I screwed up because I got some extra screws or an extra part. Most of the time, I can't even read the instructions. I have to go online and go on YouTube and see if somebody else bought the same product and they figured out how to assemble it. And so maybe I can assemble it. But how long does it take? Maybe it takes an hour. Maybe it takes two hours. You know, sometimes I buy stuff for the kids and then I have to pay somebody to come to my house and set it up. But that's not in the CPI, the fact that I have to pay extra to assemble stuff that once upon a time used to come already assembled when you bought it. So there are all sorts of things that are increasing the true cost of goods and services, and they're completely absent from the CPI. But the main point is whether or not you think these adjustments are valid or not, The fact of the matter is we weren't making them in the 70s or 80s. So it is completely disingenuous to look at those lower numbers and claim that it's not as bad now when it's a completely different methodology for calculating those numbers. In fact, if you got rid of the substitution, got rid of the hedonics, put houses back in there, again, you're at 15% worse than any year of the 70s or the early 1980s. And the worst part about it is we're just getting started. We have a rate this bad early in the cycle. The Fed isn't even close to doing anything about it. Interest rates are still at zero. The Fed is still doing quantitative easing. In the face of this horrific inflation, the Fed is doing nothing but talking about fighting it. And again, if they actually could do something about fighting inflation, they wouldn't be talking about it. They would be doing it right now because we already have a huge problem. You know, there's a big difference between talking about doing something in the future and actually doing it right now, especially when the thing you're talking about doing is difficult, right? A lot of people who smoke cigarettes will say, you know, I'm going to quit, but I'm going to quit, you know, next month, right? Or I'm going to quit for New Year's or something like that, or somebody who's overweight. Yeah, I'm going to go on a diet next week, next month. You know what? You're going to go on a diet? Go on a diet right now. What's wrong with going on a diet right now? You want to quit smoking? Don't quit smoking in the future. Quit today. How about that? Well, I can't do it today. Right. Because it's easy to procrastinate something into the future and then never do it. And maybe, you know, you can rationalize in your mind. Yes, I'm going to go on a diet, but, you know, I just can't do it right now. Well, that's what Powell is saying. We're going to fight inflation. Don't worry about it. By the middle of next year, we'll be fighting it. But, you know, we can't do it now. In fact, not only can't we do it now, we're going to make it worse before we fight it. We're going to keep throwing gasoline on this fire to make the fire bigger. And then later next year, we'll start putting it out. But how are we going to put it out? By raising interest rates by 25 basis points or 50 basis points. 
how could you possibly do anything about a three alarm fire, you know, with a water gun? I mean, that's basically what Powell is saying he's going to do. And it's going to have absolutely no effect on inflation that is going to be much worse in the middle of 2022 than it is right now. And again, one of the reasons for that is that businesses that have been reluctant to pass on the full extent of their rising costs because they believed the transitory narrative early in the year. Well, now that they realize that's not the case, there's a lot of pressure on margins. They have to start increasing their prices. And of course, owners of Quilvin Rent can't stay down at 3.5% forever. At some point, it's going to dawn on the people who are getting questioned about what it would cost to rent out their house that rents have actually gone up a lot. I mean, they may not know what the rental market is because they're not part of the rental market. They just own a home. So what do they know about rents? But at some point, they're going to figure out, hey, rents are way up. And so when they answer the survey, uh, they're going to have much higher numbers. And so that is going to bleed into the official numbers, of course, putting more and more pressure on the Fed. Don't let the stress of daily life weigh on your body. Whether you're an elite athlete or someone like me just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can really help. I've been using Theragun myself for a couple of years and it's become such an integral part of my life that I've teamed up with Theragun and now they're allowing my listeners to try Theragun for 30 days for as little as $199. To get the deal, go to therabody.com Peter to get your Gen 4 Theragun today. Theragun is a handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension. It uses scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. The Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good, it gets right to the source of the pain by releasing the tension. Theragun's signature percussive therapy goes 60% deeper than vibrations alone. So whether you want to treat your muscle tensions from a workout, help heal an injury, or just relieve the stress of everyday life, there's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. In fact, the OLED screen and the new design makes you feel like you're holding something from the future, except it's available right now in the present. I was first introduced to Theragun when I had an injury to my lower back. I've had lower back problems for decades and I borrowed a friend's and it worked so well, I immediately ordered one for myself and now it's part of my daily routine, especially on those days where I hit the gym. I always like to use the Theragun on the particular muscle groups that I worked out that day to help relax the muscles and allow me to feel better throughout the day. So just get yourself a Theragun, get it for a friend for Christmas. Trust me, you'll use yours every day and the friend that you gave one to will thank you too because they're gonna use theirs every day. Just try Theragun for 30 days starting at $199. Go to therabody.com slash Peter right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's therabody.com slash Peter, therabody.com slash Peter. But whenever I talk about how the CPI isn't accurate, right, and it doesn't really represent inflation, a lot of people will say, well, you know, that's some kind of conspiracy theory. This doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're saying the government is rigging the numbers, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the CPI itself is pre-rigged. They don't have to do anything. It's just the methodology for reporting it is already designed to produce a lower number. And in fact, when they made all these changes, the Boskin Commission, you know, in the 90s, when these changes went into effect, 
the government specifically said that the CPI was overstating inflation and they were going to fix that mistake and they fixed it, right? The fix is now in on the CPI. It's one big lie. And people have to understand there is a very compelling interest that the government has in reporting low inflation because high inflation is very bad for the government to say the least, right? It's just like if you allowed your kids to grade their own report cards, right? Do they have an incentive to bring home D's and F's? Of course not, right? I mean, it's much better if they can show their parents A's and B's. So if the kids are grading their own report card, obviously you would expect much higher grades than if a teacher was doing it. Or as my father used to always say, expecting the government to give you honest information about inflation is like expecting the mafia to give you honest information about crime. I mean, obviously the mafia has a vested interest in pretending there's less crime, especially since they're the ones that are committing it. But if the public thinks there's not a lot of crime, well, then we don't need a lot of police, right? And the mafia obviously doesn't want to have to bribe more police officers. So they don't want to come out with a report that indicates a lot of crime. They want to say, hey, there's no crime at all. In fact, we can get rid of some of the police officers we have because we hardly have any crime. Well, it's the same incentive for the government. The government is much better off if it reports low inflation than high inflation. I mean, first of all, an obvious reason is inflation's a bad thing. I mean, voters don't like inflation. They don't like their cost of living going up. So why deliver bad news to the voters? If you can lie to the voters and pretend that inflation is lower than it really is, right? That's great for politicians because they don't want to give voters bad news because then the voters may vote to elect somebody else, right? Oh, hey, inflation is bad. I'm going to blame the incumbent. So I'm going to vote for the challenger. Well, if we're told, hey, there is no inflation. Well, you know, that's one less reason to vote for somebody else. But also inflation reveals the true cost of very popular government programs. And a lot of these programs would be a lot less popular if people realized how much they cost. If people understood that they're paying higher prices to finance government spending, that inflation is a tax. And so to the extent that the government lies about inflation, then it hides the true cost of these government programs. So voters continue to think they're getting something for nothing. And so they keep reelecting the politicians who are giving them something for nothing. If they realized that, wait a minute, my cost of living is going up X as a result of paying for all this stuff that I thought was free, it's not really free. And now all of a sudden those politicians that are providing it don't look as good and maybe you'll vote for somebody else. Another reason though, that the government has a vested interest in underreporting inflation is by definition, when you do that, you overreport GDP growth because we always adjust the GDP numbers for inflation. But if you undercount inflation, then you're not decreasing GDP enough. And so in other words, you're overstating how much the economy is growing. Now, politicians always want to brag about GDP growth because that is the barometer that they're using or one of the barometers to measure the success of their policies. So if you could lie and artificially inflate the GDP by 
undercounting inflation. Well, you can pretend the economy is better than it really is. You can take credit for economic growth that didn't really take place. It makes you look good. Again, it's like a student. If you could do lousy work, but still bring home an A on your report card, you could impress your parents. Hey, look, I got an A, even though you actually flunked because you wrote your own report card. So you have these politicians can tell the voters, hey, look how good a job we're doing. Look at how much the economy is growing when it's not really growing. It's just that we're lying to you about inflation, but we're not telling it. But there's also real savings to the government when it comes to undercounting inflation. Social security benefits are indexed to inflation. There's a COLA. So every year people get more money based on the CPI. Now, of course, Social Security is broke. The government doesn't have the money, but no politician has the guts to officially vote to reduce Social Security benefits, right? Social Security is the third rail. No one's going to touch that. But the government touches Social Security every year. Nobody knows. And that's through the COLAs. Because if Social Security recipients are supposed to get a cost of living increase every year, But if the government lies about what inflation is, then that increase is much lower than it legally should be. And so what undercounting inflation does, when you report a CPI that is much lower than the actual increase in the cost of living, you are cutting Social Security benefits, but no politician has to make the politically embarrassing vote. Who wants to cast a vote to cut Social Security? Nobody. So the best way to do it, because everybody knows we need to cut Social Security, but everybody's afraid to do it, well, let's just lie about the CPI. And then we can have these cuts without anybody having to risk voting for it and not getting reelected. But a rigged CPI also adds to government revenue. Look at the income tax. A lot of the tax code is indexed to inflation. And the index they use is the CPI. The standard deduction is indexed. The personal exemptions are indexed. The tax brackets, they're all indexed to inflation. And so to the extent that the government underreports inflation, those brackets are not adjusted enough. And so taxpayers end up paying higher taxes without anybody voting to increase their taxes. Again, politicians don't like to vote to raise taxes, but they want more revenue. So the way they can get more revenue without raising taxes is to lie about the inflation numbers. So they lie about them. Also, what about interest on the national debt? I mean, first of all, you got treasury inflation-protected securities, those are TIPS, those are specifically indexed to the CPI. So the higher the CPI is, the more interest the government has to pay on its TIPS. So if it lies about the CPI, well, then it pays lower interest. The government calculates the CPI. The government is the one that benefits from a low CPI and suffers from a high CPI. It's the ultimate in hiring the fox to guard your hen house. Obviously, we're getting the results that we would expect. Why so many people think it's crazy to believe that the CPI is somehow biased or skewed when there are so many incentives for the government that is compiling it to skew it in a lower direction. But also, it's not just tips. The U.S. government, the national debt, which by the way, just past 29 trillion. We're almost at 30 trillion, but the US government is the biggest debtor in the world, probably in the entire universe. Maybe if there's life on other planets, I would be willing to bet that our government has more debt than any government on any other planet orbiting any star in any part of the universe. But in any event, 
because the government has this much debt, the U.S. government is more exposed than ever to an increase in interest rates. And one of the reasons that interest rates go up is higher inflation. The higher inflation is, the greater the premium that borrowers demand to compensate them for that loss of purchasing power. So by fooling lenders into believing that inflation is lower than it really is, the government could borrow at a lower rate of interest than it would otherwise be able to borrow at if it reported a higher rate of inflation. So the government saves a tremendous amount of money by understating inflation, which is exactly why they do it. And of course, it is this vulnerability, the fact that the U.S. government and other segments of the economy, right, state and local governments, corporations, individuals, everybody is loaded up with debt. And a lot of that debt has a very low interest payment, thanks to the fact that everybody believes that inflation is really low. Now, of course, a lot of that has to do with the federal government's artificial suppression of those interest rates by keeping Fed funds down at 0% and everything is being priced off that and doing all this quantitative easing. But if the Federal Reserve actually raised interest rates because we acknowledge that inflation was much higher than it is, or if the Federal Reserve actually had to fight inflation by raising interest rates, it would have a profound effect on everybody who has debt. In fact, look at the federal government. Interest on the national debt right now and it's again, 29 trillion, total interest cost to the US government is $305 billion. That's the latest budget, 2022, $305 billion in interest expense on a $29 trillion national debt. That's basically 1% interest. That is the average cost to the government of servicing the national debt. That's about 5% of the entire budget. That's the reason it's manageable. But what would happen to the U.S. budget if interest rates went up to 5%? I mean, that's not historically high. I mean, we were at 5% not too long ago. So what if we return to 5%, which, by the way, is not even high enough to deal with a 7% rate of inflation. If we're actually going to fight inflation of 7%, we need to get real rates positive, and we don't do that at 5%. But what would happen to interest on the national debt if rates went to 5%? Because remember, the national debt is financed with short-term paper. So over a few years, that entire debt is going to mature and the government is going to be paying 5% on $29 trillion, right? Not 1%. Well, what is 5% of $29 trillion? That's $1.45 trillion dollars. So in other words, the U.S. government would need an extra $1.15 trillion to pay the additional interest on the national debt if that debt was financed at a 5% average rate rather than a 1% average rate. Now, at $1.45 trillion of a $7.15 trillion budget, because right now the federal budget's about $6 trillion, but it would obviously move up above $7 trillion if interest expense moved up, but that would bring interest on the national debt to 20% of the federal budget. In fact, the only part of the federal budget that would be greater than interest on the national debt if rates went to 5% average for financing the debt would be healthcare, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. That's right now at $1.637 trillion. Interest on the national debt at 5% 
would be 1.45 trillion. That's greater than every other category, including national defense, which is right now 1.12 trillion, and social security is 1.3 trillion. Interest on the national debt would be bigger than either of those two. But what would happen if interest on the national debt went up to 10% in order to get rid of inflation, which is more likely where we're going to have to go. And of course, that's still half of the 20% rates that we had in 1980. But let's say the government had to finance the debt at 10%. Well, now interest on the $30 trillion national debt is $3 trillion. That's $2.7 trillion more per year. That, of course, would take the entire budget up to $8.7 trillion, 34% of which would be interest on the national debt. And at that point, the government would be paying as much interest on the national debt as it's spent on Social Security and Medicare combined. You could take the two largest portions of federal spending now, combine them, and interest on the national debt would actually be a higher number. Now, of course, that's impossible. There's no way that can happen. There's no way even 5% can happen. I mean, think about the cost. If interest rates go to 5%, that's an extra $1.15 trillion per year in interest expense over 10 years, because we like to talk about everything over 10 years. That's $11.5 trillion. Now, the Build Back Better bill that we're debating now the Biden administration is claiming that's going to cost $1.7 trillion over 10 years. It's more likely $3 trillion or more. But just an increase in interest rates to 5% is $11.5 trillion. That's five times the cost of BBB. That is the real threat. I mean, how could we even afford Build Back Better if interest rates go up to 5%? If the Fed is forced to fight inflation, everything else has to be sacrificed. In fact, if the Fed were to raise interest rates to 5%, the budget deficits would skyrocket a lot more than just the extra cost of interest on the debt. Because what would happen to the economy? It would implode. The stock market would crash. The real estate market would crash. We would be in the worst recession ever if the Fed had to jack rates up to 5% or higher. And so the budget deficits would explode. And so the government would have to borrow even more money at even higher rates of interest, which is why the Fed is not fighting inflation, because it can't. It can't admit that, so it has to go on pretending that it's going to fight inflation. But given the realities of the collateral damage from the fight, it's never going to happen. We also got some additional economic data on Thursday that indicate that the Fed shouldn't just be talking about fighting inflation in the future, but they should be fighting the inflation in the present right now. We got the weekly unemployment claims and in the most recent week, ended December 4th, new claims for unemployment collapsed by 43,000 to 184,000 new claims for unemployment. Now, that is the lowest number of new claims filed in 52 years. Now, according to the Keynesians and the Phillips Curvers, when you have low unemployment, then you're going to have high inflation. Now, that's not a true statement, but all these Keynesians apparently believe it. So even though we're not technically at full employment, 
people are not losing their jobs. Employers are not firing people because they're worried that they may not be able to hire them back. There's this labor shortage. People don't want to work. And so employers are not laying off the employees that they have. From a Keynesian perspective, this should be a problem, especially when you combine that with the big drop in Q3 productivity. I went over on a prior podcast the biggest collapse in productivity in 62 years. So we have the fewest people being fired in 52 years, the weakest productivity of those who still have jobs in 62 years. The Fed still has interest rates locked at zero and they're still doing quantitative easing. We already have a huge inflation problem and all these statistics merely suggest that the big inflation problem we have now is going to get much bigger. So why isn't the Fed doing anything to put out the fire now? Why is it pouring gasoline on it and promising to deal with an even bigger fire in the future? And again, that's because they can't even deal with the fire that exists today, let alone the larger fire that current policy is fueling. So basically, no matter what school of economic thought you subscribe to, if you're Keynesian, if you're a monetarist, if you're a supply sider, if you're an Austrian, everything points to a huge inflation problem. There's really no excuse. There's no way to deny it. Yet all the so-called economists that work at the Fed or work for the U.S. government claim that there's nothing to worry about. There's no problem. We got it under control. Based on what economic theory can anybody objectively look at this data and not think we have a huge inflation problem that needs immediate attention? The only possible explanation for this is that people recognize the problem. They just don't want to acknowledge its existence because they realize that they don't have the ability to do anything about it because that would reveal the nature of the problem. So they have to deny that the problem exists or pretend it's going to go away. The amazing thing to me is that the markets have still not figured this out. Yes, the price of gold was up a little bit on Friday, maybe nine or ten dollars. But look what happened to gold stocks. Gold stock prices fell on the day. Why? Why is worse than expected inflation a negative for gold stocks when they should be among the primary beneficiaries of inflation? And again, that's because the markets still expect the Fed to solve the inflation problem, to fight off inflation and win, even though the weapons that they're threatening to use would be completely ineffective, even if you believe the government numbers, which are obviously false, these small rate hikes are not nearly enough to deal with the 7% inflation that the government pretends we have, let alone the 15% inflation we actually have. And the question is, When is the public going to wake up? When are investors going to wake up to realize that the Fed is threatening a fight that it can't win? And because it can't win it, it's not going to pick it. It's just going to bluff. In fact, think about the impact of rising rates on the Fed itself, because the Fed has a huge balance sheet. Its current size is $8.665 trillion dollars. And that balance sheet consists largely of longer term U.S. government debt. What would happen to the value of that balance sheet if the Federal Reserve 
jacked up interest rates. Well, it would crash because the mark-to-market value of the securities that it's holding would go way down. The Federal Reserve would lose a tremendous amount of money if it actually fought inflation by raising interest rates sufficiently to actually fight which is another reason why they won't do it. Now, of course, the Fed also loses on its balance sheet to inflation because the bonds that it holds are losing value over time. But the Fed doesn't give a damn about that because those losses don't have to be marked to market. In contrast, if the dollar price of the bonds fall, they have to mark those losses to market and realize them by sending a bill to the U.S. Treasury to cover those losses because the Fed's assets have to match their liabilities. And if the value of their assets go down because bond prices have fallen, well, they need to make up that gap. They need new revenue. Well, where are they going to get it? They actually send an invoice to the U.S. government and it says, hey, we lost a trillion dollars this year on our balance sheet, so send us a trillion dollars. I mean, normally the U.S. government is getting money from the Fed. Well, if the U.S. government has to give money to the Fed, where's it going to get it? Well, it has to get it from the taxpayer. So can you imagine raising taxes to bail out the Federal Reserve or cutting Social Security or Medicare in order to bail out the Federal Reserve? That's what would have to happen if the Federal Reserve actually fought inflation, which is another reason why it won't. So that's why everyone in the government from the Federal Reserve to the U.S. Treasury lies about inflation. And, you know, while I'm talking about liars, I want to finish up this podcast by talking about another liar, and that is Jussie Smollett. And in fact, whenever you see Jerome Powell talking about inflation or Janet Yellen, just picture Jussie Smollett talking about how he was the victim of a hate crime, because it's basically the same concept, right? Jussie Smollett has a huge incentive to lie and pretend he was an actual victim as opposed to confessing and telling the truth. So he is continuing to lie about what happened to him that night in Chicago, the same way the government is lying to the public about what's actually happening in consumer prices. But if you haven't heard the news, Jussie Smollett was convicted five out of six counts of basically providing the police with false information, lying to the police, faking a hate crime, perpetrating a gigantic hoax, not only on the city of Chicago, but on the entire nation. And he has now been rightfully convicted. And we're still waiting for the judge to impose sentence. Personally, I hope they throw the book at Smollett, not just for the crimes that he was accused of prior to the trial, but for committing perjury on the witness stand during the trial because Smollett denied guilt and said he didn't do exactly what the prosecutors proved to the jury that he did. The fact that Smollett was convicted proves the jury did not believe anything he said, which means if he was tried for perjury, another jury would convict him of that. Now, there's no reason to have another trial for perjury because the judge can simply reflect that in his sentence that he is about to hand down. And the sentence should be much harsher given the perjury. Look, if Smollett had just confessed once he was confronted with overwhelming evidence of guilt, he could have said, okay, you got me. I confess, yes, I caused the city to waste a lot of money, but I'm not going to make them waste more by 
putting on a trial, right? That could have been reflected in a lighter sentence. Or if Smollett exercised his Fifth Amendment right not to testify, right? Because if you're guilty, you don't have to go on the stand and lie. You can just refuse to testify and then you don't commit perjury. You're forcing the government to prove that you're guilty, but you don't have to take the stand and commit another crime by committing perjury. But once you decide to go on the stand, and you waive that Fifth Amendment right not to be a witness against yourself, you are still subject to the laws of perjury. So you're not allowed to go on the witness stand and tell lies to the jury in order to not get convicted. I mean, if you're guilty, you can just keep your mouth shut and hope the government doesn't prove its case. There's nothing wrong with that. But the minute you take the stand, you have to tell the truth. And if you lie, well, now you've committed another crime. You've committed perjury. Perjury, I think, is punishable by five years in prison. So I think at a minimum, Smollett should get five years. Now, a lot of people think he's just going to get off. He's going to get community service. If he does, if Smollett does not get some substantial prison time, it's only because of black privilege. And everybody wants to make a big deal about white privilege. Look, if Smollett were white, I think it would be a completely different situation. People would be demanding his head, and I'm sure the Justice Department would serve it up. I mean, think about the facts and switch the races. What if Jussie Smollett was a straight white man, and he made up a fake hate crime, and he lied, and he said, hey, I was jumped by a couple of gay black guys. They had Black Lives Matters t-shirts on and they call me white boy and they attack me, they beat me up, whatever. Just make up the facts, right? Just a complete fake hate crime. And then it was exposed as a hoax. Don't you think everybody would be out for the maximum prison sentence for this white guy who, you know, falsely pretended that he was the victim of a hate crime and to try to somehow degrade the African-American community, the LBGQ community, whatever. Yes, they would want the judge to throw the book at him, but everybody wants them to go easy on Smollett. And again, I think it's probably because he's black and he's gay. And so he's a member of the protected class. And so therefore he should have special treatment. In fact, if it was a straight white guy that made this story up, nobody would have believed it. That's the crazy part about it. The story that Smollett told was so incredulous that no sane person could have possibly believed it. The only reason that people pretended to believe this nonsense was because Smollett was black and maybe because he was gay as well, because people were afraid to call him a liar because anybody that called him a liar was themselves a racist or a homophobe. So you had to pretend that the lie was true in order to virtue signal that you weren't a racist or you weren't a homophobe and you just believe all victims. Like whatever a victim says something bad happened, you have to believe the victim no matter how unbelievable the victim's story happens to be. And in fact, not that I necessarily want to just pat my own back on this one, but I do think that I was one of the first, if not the first person to really publicly come out and say Smollett's a liar. I don't believe what he's saying. He's lying. He made the whole thing up. I said that on my podcast, February 1st, you can go listen to that podcast. It's called Truth is the Real Victim, right? And what I meant by that was that Smollett was lying. 
That's why Truth was the victim, not Smollett. I said that on February 1st. Now, if you go back to the timeline of this case, January 29th was when the staged hate crime took place, right? So that's when Smollett was attacked by the Nigerian brothers. Now, I don't think it really became a story until the following day, which was January 30th, right? That's when everybody finds out about this horrible hate crime, these white MAGA supporters threw a noose around Smollett's neck. They doused him with bleach. They told him this was MAGA country. They attacked him. He fought back, right? Two o'clock in the morning, polar vortex. He's out going for a sandwich, whatever, right? The news came out on January 30th. Two days later, I am on my podcast saying, there's no way this is true. I don't believe this guy, he's lying. Everybody else in the media at that time was still believing Smollett. Even though they had access to all the same information I did, it should have been as obvious to them that the guy made the whole thing up as it was to me, but they were afraid of speaking the truth. They treated Smollett differently because of his race and his sexual orientation. You see, I didn't. I am not a racist. And if somebody lies, I don't care if they're black or white, gay or straight. I treat black liars the same way I treat white liars. I don't give you a pass because of the color of your skin, right? I'm not going to go easy on you just because you're black or just because you're gay. I'm going to treat you exactly the same way as I would treat a white person or a straight person. I'm just going on the facts. And if what you're saying doesn't make sense, I'm going to call you out. But the mainstream media continued to act as if Smollett was an actual victim of a hate crime, even though it was obvious he made it up. Nobody on the mainstream media even questioned their narrative in any real sense until the police came out. And this was on February 16th. So just over two weeks later, the police came out and revealed the identities of the persons of interest whose images had been captured on that grainy surveillance video. And it turned out they were these Nigerian brothers, right, who were black. And so once we knew that the people who attacked Smollett were not white, they were black. So he made up the fact that they were white because there's no way that Smollett could have mistaken these Nigerian brothers for white guys. I mean, even though Smollett said that they had ski masks, he said he could see their eyes because the mask didn't cover all their eyes and he could see their white skin poking through their eyes. They are very dark-skinned African-Americans. They're not like Smollett. Smollett's kind of light-skinned. These guys are from Africa. They're Nigerian. They are very dark. No way that they could have been mistaken for white. So clearly he was lying. Plus he had a relationship with these guys. And of course, more details came out later that were presented to the jury, which is why the jury found him guilty. But it wasn't until then that it was obvious that people had the guts to admit that this guy had made it up, right? Because now you had cover, you had actual proof that he was lying. And so it was safe to acknowledge it. But I acknowledged the lies when it wasn't safe because I could just tell by putting the facts together. And it's not that I'm, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something. It wasn't that difficult to realize that he was lying. In fact, I'm sure the police knew he was lying right away. They just kept quiet and allowed him to hang himself as they were piecing together the case. 
But it's not that I am such a sleuth when it comes to being a detective. It's just that I was willing to state the obvious because I don't care about being politically incorrect. I don't care if somebody wants to call me a racist because I know I'm not a racist and I'm secure in myself and I don't care what people think of me. I'm just going to tell the truth. And the problem is so many people won't tell the truth. They will bow down to that pressure. And that's one of the reasons that Smollett thought he would get away with this crazy lie because he knew he would be believed because he's the so-called victim. He's the right race. He's the right sexual orientation. So he can say whatever he wants and nobody will question him because everybody's afraid to speak up because the minute you speak out against the liar, you're a homophobe. You're a racist. Why don't you believe him? It's obviously because he's black. No, I don't believe Smollett because he's lying because what he's saying doesn't make sense. I don't care what race he is or what sexual orientation he is. The facts speak for themselves. This guy is making it up. And of course, he had a lot of reasons to make it up. I mean, I never even knew who this guy was before this happened. I mean, he was on this show, Empire. I never heard of that show either. I've never seen the show. I've still never watched it, but I know what it is now. Thanks to this, I know who Jussie Smollett is. I even know how to pronounce his name, Jussie. I mean, who the hell would ever know that? But so everybody knows who he is because of this hate crime. If it had gone according to plan, right? Obviously, he did not want the police to find those Nigerian brothers, right? He wanted to play the victim card. He wanted to use this for his own personal financial gain. And he didn't care about what the taxpayers of Chicago had to pay. He also didn't care if something happened. What if there were riots as a result of this racial attack on Smollett, right? Oh, we need to riot and protest this racism, this homophobia. What if property was damaged? What if some people got killed in riots and looting because this guy made up a phony hate crime? He didn't give a damn about that. He didn't care about anybody but himself. He used the racial division in this country for personal financial gain. Even if making that divide wider, he didn't care. He only cared about himself. They need to throw the book at this guy, especially since he continues to lie about his guilt. He has no remorse, no contrition. He's threatening to appeal this verdict He needs to go to jail for a long time, A, to send a message to other would-be Smollett's that you don't fake hate crimes. You lie to the police, you commit perjury, you're going to go to jail. Not you're going to get off with community service. We need to make an example of Smollett so that other people don't think that they can get away with it. Or, hey, I'll take a chance. Maybe it'll work. Worst case scenario, I'll get off with a little community service. This guy needs to do some serious jail time as an example, but also the public has to stop believing nonsense and they have to stop being afraid of being called a racist simply because they doubt something that an African-American says. Everybody is equal. Nobody should be given a pass. Nobody should be treated differently based on their skin color. Treat everybody the same. That's how not to be a racist. It is racist if you treat people differently. So if Smollett was white and he told the same tale and you wouldn't believe it, well, then you have to not believe it with him being black. You can't just say, well, yes, it sounds kind of crazy. I normally wouldn't believe it. I mean, if a white guy said it, I would never believe it. But, you know, he's black, so I guess I have to believe him. No, that is racist.
And so as long as the public is willing to kowtow to this type of pressure, this kind of woke mob, then we're going to have more fake hate crimes out there because the people who perpetrate them know that the public is going to believe them, especially when so many people want to advance that false narrative. Everybody wants to paint America as if it's a very racist country. And so the media is looking for examples of racism. And if those examples don't actually exist, they make them up. 